Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm Dr. Mary Barson. And I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Good morning, lovely listeners. It's Dr. Lucy here today. I have a wonderful, wonderful guest who I will introduce soon. But I did just want to read out one of our fabulous reviews on the podcast. And this one, I'm so grateful to somebody whose name is Ruby Red 29 because she's written the most beautiful thing. And she said to us that this is a great show if you want some practical and easy to understand information about healthy eating and lifestyle. Doctors Lucy and Mary have so much real experience and knowledge about improving health and well-being from foods to improve health and weight loss to meditation, stress reduction, psychology, hypnosis and guests who have followed their programs with great stories of their journey. Wonderful show, highly recommended. Ruby Red, thank you so much for saying that. It is so kind and I really, really appreciate that you took the time to write that for us. Darling listeners, if you feel like writing a review, we would be so grateful. It really helps us just spread the word for the podcast and allow other people to, I guess, get on their journey to real health and weight loss. But Today, I have a fantastic guest for you. You'll be super excited to meet her. Her name is Dr. Deepa Mahananda, and she is one half of Low Carb Sydney Specialist Clinic. Her passion is helping women, in particular, enjoy a low-carb lifestyle that can help with some of their underlying issues. So, Deepa, I'd love to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Lucy, and thanks for inviting me to be on. Ah, you're welcome. Well, darling, you know, we have a lot of lady listeners and I think that you are going to have a wealth of knowledge to share with them. So I thought it's really like a no-brainer for me. Why wouldn't we have you on? So the first thing I guess I would love for you to share with us is how you came across low carb and whether it's helped you in your health. Yeah, so I think in terms of how low carb first came on the scene was probably by accident and maybe also out of curiosity as well. So it was the week before my final year medical school exams and I was studying rather intensively as we all do prior to an exam period and I developed a really sharp left-sided pelvic pain. Out of the blue, took my breath away and, and just persisted for most of an afternoon before I thought, okay, it's really time I need to actually go take myself to an emergency department. Fast forward a couple of days later, I was sitting in a gynecologist's rooms and I was being told I had stage four endometriosis, which is the most severe form of endometriosis that you can have. That was his suspicion, um, of course. It it had to be officially diagnosed and uh, from what they could already see on some of the investigations, there were signs of what they call endometriomas which are basically chocolate looking cysts that can be seen on an ultrasound so accordingly as is medical practice they recommended I undergo um, a laparoscopic procedure which is a keyhole procedure to have a look if this is truly what we're dealing with and take some samples and also at the same time do what they call a therapeutic removal of all the endometrioma, which is probably the reason I'd had such excruciating pain to begin with. Likely one of those endometriomas had actually pressed on something quite significant, uh, causing that severe pain. But 
it all seemed to suddenly make sense because I'd suffered with years since the since the first time I had a period um, with severe pain prior to each period and very heavy periods as well. So it made a lot of sense. Um, I was about 23-ish at the time, 24 at the time when I was diagnosed. And to me, I'd always just been told having a painful period was normal. My mum had had it, aunties had had it. Everybody seemed to normalise that. And unfortunately, as I know now, actually having such painful periods is not a normal thing at all. Um, even though they were regular, that it just it, it isn't normal to be so incapacitated by pain that you can't carry out your normal daily activities. You can't attend school, you can't study, you can't work. So that that isn't normal. So uh, that sort of sprung me into a bit of a vortex because I had significant surgery. I actually had endometrioma on my bowel, the outside of my bowel, so I needed partial bowel resection as well. So really from there, that's when I started to consider what what could I do that was more in my control that might limit this disease? Because when I was told I had the diagnosis, I was told it's, it's likely to be chronic, likely to be there lifelong. Probably there'll be things that we can do to reduce its severity in terms of medications and surgeries and, and possible recurrent surgeries if needed. But nobody really said that there could be a way to put it into remission. And that's sort of what's bring me into action to go, okay, well, what can I do with my medical knowledge and my ability to read the literature and have a look into things that might work? And probably around the same time oh, as the years went, went on, I started to discover that there were lots of people getting great benefits from a low-carb carbohydrate diet. And it was Dr. Gary Fetke who probably planted that seed in his probably the first lectures I listened to were, were by him and I uh, started to think more about it, um, caught up with the group Low Carb Down Under and went to their conferences and I, I just felt that once I saw the benefits that it had on a wide ranging, not, ju- not just for metabolic health or metabolic diseases, but even beyond that, I thought, well, what can be achieved when that's applied to different conditions where the pathogenesis of those conditions are not well known um, and still are yet to be fully understood, but is there a role of improving our nutrition in the mix? So putting that into practice in my day-to-day life I've found that I haven't needed to ever rely on any systemic medications. So I've only ever used a marina initially to control the symptoms of endometriosis after that initial surgery. I brought forward my family planning in terms of I thought, well, look, children were always going to be on the cards for me. And the same time I was diagnosed, I, I, we only had just gotten married six months earlier. So for us, it was a no brainer to try to have children earlier because fertility is something that, you know, all of a sudden was thrown into the limelight after you get a diagnosis like that and you realise that, yes, our eggs are not finite. Uh, It is very useful to, if if I wanted to have a family, to try earlier and, and probably likely to be more effective. And luckily now I've got two children. But certainly I think in and amongst all of that, my diet has just undergone a rapid overhaul. I've taken a lot of processed food out of the mix since 2012 when I was diagnosed and 
to the point where now I would be, I'd, you know, be on what you would call more a well-formulated ketogenic diet. And I haven't had any symptoms of endometriosis, even after the times through pregnancies where you would expect that these symptoms should go away. So I've always waited with bated breath after a pregnancy once I've delivered going, oh, is this about to rear its head? And there's been nothing. And I don't know, I can't fully attribute that to the diet. You know, there's certainly been the surgery, that initial surgery, which I think would have taken a whole lot of, a load away, but that was 10 years ago now. And I haven't used a, a marina in recent times. So I can't even say that it was, that it's the local progesterone that's, um, helped it. So it's been a, a real eye-opening personal experience. And in that way, that's sort of what brought me into the low carb space because it was that interest in nutrition as a useful tool within medicine and treating conditions. But also the fact that, you know, you've lived a life or a, or a childhood at least and into my early 20s of a, a diet that was very much a standard diet, probably far more processed foods than than you would even need. But um, just to think about what is the long-term impact as you move through life and that, you know, yes, there's this concept you can get away with a, a bad diet when you're young, but actually you can't because there is a lot that's laid down at an early age and you, you always sort of wonder, well, um, how much of my environment and the nutrition that I'd interacted with at a younger age have changed the way I am today, biologically, physically, um, and even socially, you know, your impact on cognitive and, and mental health as well, which is really something that underpins your relationships with people. So it's profound. And I think recognizing that and bringing it into my general practice work with patients has made a huge difference. So now when I think about women's health issues, I'm always thinking, well, okay, let's go back to, let's go all the way back to what are the root causes? When did this start? And is it something that you didn't even realize was a symptom? Like for me, I didn't even realize painful periods was a symptom of anything. Ah, oh, Deepa, you have brought up so many points in my head. I've been going, right, I'm going to talk about this one, talk about this one, talk about this. So the first thing I want to talk about is painful periods and this normalizing of women's suffering and that if you talk about it or complain about it, that somehow you're you're just a wuss and you just need to toughen up princess and crack on. And I think there's probably thousands of women like you who have sort of suffered in silence thinking that a this is normal and b everyone else seems to be fine with it so obviously i'm just i'm just weak and carrying on so i guess lovely listeners if you or your daughters or your nieces or your grandchildren if anybody had periods are not supposed to be excruciating some people might have a little bit of discomfort some dullness some you know a dragging feeling but not incapacitating pain. So if you have any of that, please go and get checked. The second thing that I would love for you to just maybe explain is what endometriosis actually is. And I know it's commonly referred to now as endo. So if people are talking about their endo, this is what they're talking about. So what exactly is it? Hmm. So endometriosis is a condition where the lining of the uterus and those particular cells that are unique to that organ actually are found growing outside of that 
area. So you can actually find uncontrolled growth of this in in and on the ovaries, outside the uterus, outside the bowel, and, and can grow through your bowel as well, outside the bladder. So can involve any area in that in the pelvic region and in some severe cases can also encroach on the abdominal cavity as well. So the phenomenon that causes it isn't well understood. There's a lot of hypotheses put forward as to what sort of drives it but what we know now is that it's probably a mixture of a couple of things but physical so they often talk about retrograde menstruation which is sort of where you have a period but part of that period blood is actually going up into the fallopian tubes and spilling out into the ovaries and the outer pelvic area so that area can then obviously pick up some of these cells and these cells can find a nice habitat in which to to take up home. So that's one sort of theory and and it has held up a little bit over time. But in conjunction with that, it's probably more than just this that's occurring because it's actually found that 90% of women can experience this retrograde menstruation, yet 90% of women do not have endometriosis. So the other things that might control some of the... I suppose the phenotype of endometriosis and actually ending up with this problem is inflammation. So we talk about pro-inflammatory mediators in the body and forms of chronic inflammation as well. Some of this can be driven by things that are related to hormones alone. So in the form of um, excessive androgenization, so those sorts of elements, but there's also the side that can be driven from a metabolic syndrome standpoint. And so there are some overlaps here between what are the drivers of the inflammation and because it's quite systemic, it can affect many different organs and the uterus being one of those organs. So when the uterus is under such an environment, it can essentially um, have functional issues. And this is another reason why it's thought that endometriosis can rear its head. And then there are also genetic underlying features. So that again, it's, it's not a uh, well understood field. There's a lot of different genes that have been proposed or put forward, but we haven't really been able to identify a particular one that we can target with a meaningful treatment. So that's all sort of esoteric, I suppose. It's not really a practical thing that we can put our hat on just yet anyway. But um, I would say, you know, reading the literature around endometriosis and its overlap as a autoimmune disease to an extent, because these cells that are growing outside the uterus where they normally shouldn't grow, that brings to mind the idea of, oh, they're acting like a cancer-like cell. They're growing in a way that is uncontrolled outside of a setting where they normally are. So that means that these cells have escaped immune surveillance. So it is a dysfunction of our immune system because we actually rely upon the immune system to put a stop to that fairly quickly if it's functioning appropriately. So I think at the end of all that, it's probably a very multifactorial cause behind what drives endometriosis. And sometimes it can be difficult to find exactly what that root cause is, but potentially there are ways we can mitigate some of those pathways. And that's one area where nutrition comes into it. 
I love that idea that it's an inflammatory process or that, you know, it's a result of an inflammatory process because you're absolutely right. Um, you know, for many people now, our bodies are exposed to low-grade but long-term inflammation, so day-in, day-out levels. And, you know, inflammation has a role in the in the acute setting or, or listeners, that means the short-term setting, you know, for in, managing infections and all sorts of things like that. But our bodies are not designed to endure long-term low-grade inflammation. And so there are disease processes that occur when, when the body is in that process. So, yes, maybe endometriosis is one of those such diseases. So that would give um, then a nice, you know, hypothesis, I guess, on why something like low-carbon, and it probably certainly low-carb but a real food diet at the front because we, we love the idea of low-carb but real food because you can do low-carb processed food, and I think that for a lot of people they do not see the health benefits from doing a low-carb processed food diet compared to a low-carb real food diet. So that would make complete sense for me. So, so therefore, what you're describing is that you changed your diet, reduced uh, a lot of the processed food, which will therefore reduce the salt. Uh, I was about to say the salt, but of course, I don't care that much about salt. But the the um, seed oils and the <laughs> and the other things being that a lot of the fillers and the chemicals and the numbers and all those things that for which we assume are harmless, but just maybe they're not. I think with those particular foods, you know, sometimes it's the dose that makes the poison. So for someone, you know, just to throw a hypothetical out there, if someone same age as me, didn't have endometriosis, didn't have felt well, but was eating a very similar diet, it's not to say that they would go on to continue enjoying that good health for some time, probably at some stage um, and phase of life that would catch up with them and have some interplay with their environment. But it just so happens that because particularly in these types of conditions and very much so in autoimmune conditions like that overlap with endometriosis, so things that would be like Hashimoto's, celiac disease is another one that comes to mind. So these are things that are triggered with a genetic vulnerability, but the environment certainly has a huge part to play so when it comes to seed oils obviously having quite a lot of seed oils in the diet can lead to a pro-inflammatory state which can make this worse and bring to light some of the underlying vulnerabilities that are already there and it makes a lot of sense to not having a lot of you know nutrient devoid processed foods as you as you were describing because you also are not actually creating a nourishing environment for good health um, and particularly in women for hormone health. So the imbalance of hormones as well, particularly between estrogen and progesterone, can also theoretically drive some of these problems that arise around abnormal uterine bleeding, of which you know endometriosis does come under that umbrella. So I think it's, it is that... You, you by changing your nutrition, you're mod, modifying the controllables, which is your environment. And you may not be able to change your genetics, but you can certainly change whether or not they get switched on. And that's sort of where the critical part is. And to the extent, I believe that you can switch some of these things off eventually with time. 
So that, and that has been, you know, at least sedated in the literature that that's quite possible. Uh, and I think, you know, epigenetics is an emerging field and that, lovely listeners, is this, you know, the switches that turn genes off and on. Because even though your, your DNA, you can't change your DNA, your blueprint, the blueprint isn't all on or all off. The genes are in there. It's so complex. And some come on and some come off and there are environmental triggers that will turn some on. And, you know, it's the reason why some people smoke and, you know, they might get emphysema and, and some terrible lung diseases, but they don't get cancer. And other people might even smoke less, but they'll get cancer. And that's because they may have a gene that is more susceptible to that cigarette smoke and therefore is turned on. So it is always complicated, but I think if we can look at, I guess, our, our life, our health as a deck of cards and you get, you can't change your deck, but you can change the way you play them. It's a beautiful analogy. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love analogies are my favourite thing. But um, definitely having your nutrition as a at cornerstone, along with all those other lifestyle factors that we talk about, as I'm sure you talk about in your clinic deeper of, um, you know, getting good sleep, managing your stress, you know, looking after your gut. And, I mean, the best way to look after your gut like seriously, is to reduce your processed food. Like that should be the number one step. Reduce your processed food is your first step and then we see what happens. Absolutely. I mean, the, the gut is, you know, the entrance point to your human body and it's also where the bulk of your immune system lives. So it's very, you know, obvious to think that, well, what interacts at that very thin lining, one cell thick there, that will make a difference to um, the rest of the environment, you know, within your body. So things like gluten in particular, you know, they come to mind where gluten is not even necessary for anyone. There isn't one reason to be including gluten in the diet. I can't even think of one positive. It doesn't have, it's not a nutrient you need, nothing essential about it. So the presence of gluten in such an overwhelming number of foods in our supermarkets, it is really uh, distressing, I think, because so much disease can and have and may be also turned on by the presence of gluten in the environment. So I think it was a huge game changer when that was discovered. But also now that we know about it, we I think it's really important to raise that with the people that we see in our clinics and address gut health definitely, you know, as a priority when dealing with a lot of chronic conditions because a lot of the time some of this can actually be alleviated and a lot of pain and suffering is there for nothing just from people eating um, things in their diet that they had no idea could be harmful. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's really interesting because certainly in the medical world we're well aware of celiac disease and we're well aware that it's an autoimmune condition and people who have celiac disease cannot have even a sniff, like nothing, no gluten ever. But there's also this huge subset of people that... I think probably the bulk of our uh, medical colleagues would not classify as having any problems with gluten, but but we know, and, and you know if you're one of them, that you're gluten intolerant, that when you have gluten, your gut plays up, you get diarrhea, you get cramping pain, you get bloating, um, your skin plays up, you start getting sinus symptoms, like all sorts of things that you know are happening, but, you, you know, maybe 
as I said, aspects of the medical fraternity, which can sometimes be very black and white, you either have celiac or you don't, would not be listening to you. Mm, Yeah, it's a concept of, you know, if there's a test that we can show you and show you that it's negative and, and that's the case closed. That's unfortunately sometimes the paradigm that the medical profession come to treating symptoms that can't be, you know, nicely put into a mould or nicely come under a diagnosis. And that's probably not the most ideal way to move forward when we know that there's actually quite a big mix and there's a this in, mix of different things at play. It's not just black and white. Yes, there are guidelines and they're there for a reason because they give us some they give us a map or a or a direction to go in, but those maps are also used in a way to be able to exercise our judgment and our clinical judgment and acknowledge as well the real lived experience of our patients because having these symptoms and then being told that there's actually nothing at play but not being willing to take that next step and explore different options with our patients. I think that's sort of where I'm hopeful that there are more medical practitioners who will want to take that journey with their patients and, you know, rather than just be very black and white about it. And, you know, I think that's probably the future of medicine is really being able to look at a whole different cluster of symptoms and not realise that we, you know, move away from that systems-based approach where it's it's either a gut disease or it's not a gut disease because it's yeah. it's not really that, yeah. Yeah, oh, I totally agree. And I think um, there's a whole history of this happening and, you know, and certainly in recent times things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome have been poo-pooed by the medical world because we don't have a test to prove it. And, you know, look, really, honestly, that's just bunkum. We, we don't need a test. You just need to listen to your patients and they give you everything you need. You don't need tests to make a diagnosis. What I love, Mary and I love this world called pleiotrophic, which is where doing one thing helps a whole lot of other things. And so changing your nutrition to a whole food diet, lowering your carbs if you can, you know, if you need to in particular, then it helps so many things in your life that it almost feels sometimes too good to be true. I kind of go, oh, and every now and then I have to remind myself, not everything gets better by reducing your carbs, but so many things do that it's totally worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the uh, nutrition as an adjunct to mainstay of treatment, especially for, you know, different diseases like diabetes and um, heart disease as well. I mean, I think the thing to say about any sort of real food diet, whether it's you know, very low carb, moderate low carb, liberal low carb, whatever that may look like for the individual is that you're taking a movement to give yourself a lot more nutrients than you had previously. And that probably makes the biggest difference because it's those nutrients that have become devoid in the modern food environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think no processed foods, in particular processed breakfast cereals, manage to meet their five-star health rating targets by putting in fortified, so adding vitamins out of a factory. It's not the same as eating the vitamins from your food. Mm, absolutely. Good.
Deepa, it has been a delight to talk to you and I actually think we will get you back on the podcast because I know that you've got a big interest in uh, perimenopause uh, and I think that lots of our listeners would benefit greatly from hearing you speak on that. So lovelies, look out for Deepa. She'll be back and Deepa, we would love to have you back. Oh, thank you very much, Lucy. I'd love to be back on again in the future. Wonderful. So lovely. If people want to follow you, which I'm sure they would, why wouldn't they want to follow you? You're wonderful. How can they connect with you? Yeah, so we're on social media, different channels are Instagram and Facebook. And we've also got a website at sydneylowcarb.com.au. So uh, yeah, you can feel free to check those out. Excellent. So and your socials are Sydney Low Carb. Is that what yeah, you're... Sydney Low Carb. Yep. Great. Awesome. So, and we'll link it all in the show notes below, lovely folks, but definitely go follow Deepa. She's beautiful. (laughs) Thanks, Lucy. All right, lovely. So have a wonderful week. I'll catch up with you next week. Bye for now. So my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr. Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until next time, thanks thanks for for listening. listening. The information shared on the Real Health and Weight Loss podcast, including show notes and links, provides general information only. It is not a substitute, nor is it intended to provide individualized medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor can it be construed as such. Please consult your doctor for any medical concerns.